Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our seminar on uh, incentives. I suppose the first thing to say uh, about incentivization is it can take various different forms. Some involve cash, some don't. Some people look for prestige, some people look for benefits, flexible working, some time off to look after their children might be the most important thing to them. Other people want a constructive and supportive working environment, a nice manager, for example. For others, it's all about career progression, training, getting on, getting qualifications, and moving up the career ladder. But generally speaking, when you're talking about incentives, whether it's to individuals or commercial organisations, it's about the money. In terms of uh, commercial objectives, these take a variety of forms. The company might want to motivate the employees to be more productive, to align the business to the objectives of, uh, align the staff to the interests of the business, whether it's on sales or productivity or some other criteria. It may be about recruiting and retaining employees, making sure that they don't go off to your competitors, or increasing loyalty and reducing turnover. It may be about getting the best out of the tax system, paying people in the most cost-effective way, often in the form of share incentives, uh, which Michael Cashman is going to deal with later. It could be to compensate for lower salaries or to deal with cash flow. It might help an organisation to pay bonuses or to pay shares when it has money down the line. It may actually cost no money at all to, to give shares in a couple of years' time. Apart from anything else, employers want to make sure that they remain competitive uh, in employment terms. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, we've got a session of two halves. The first half, I'm going to talk about cash-based incentive arrangements. Uh, we're going to have a break for coffee, and then Michael is going to deal with the various forms of shares, incentives, and the tax implications which relate to them. So in talking about cash-based schemes, I'm going to talk about the various types of schemes. And in particular, I'm going to concentrate on what is discretion, a word that's commonly used, and how should it be exercised. I'm going to deal with the common express written terms, as well as various implied rights that are trying to undermine those terms. We're going to talk about the proliferation of repayment bonuses and clawbacks, which have become much more popular over the last couple of years. I'm going to deal with some regulatory considerations, including in particular the new FSA code. Well, not necessarily new, it's been with us for about 18 months, but we'll look at the implications of that. I'm going to talk about the discrimination um, aspects and also remedies. If you, you breach uh, the, the, the relevant requirements, what are the consequences that arise before we're finishing off with a few drafting tips? One point to mention is a lot of these concepts uh, that I'm going to talk to, for example, in relation to discretion, apply equally to the share and centre arrangements that Michael is going to talk about. So let's start off in terms of bonus schemes and firstly look at the types of arrangements. There are basically three types of arrangements. The first is something that is completely non-contractual, a non-contractual bonus or incentive arrangement. You then can have a contractual arrangement which is discretionary or with discretionary terms. And the third type is a contractual bonus with contractual terms. So let's have a look at uh, these in turn. The first thing is it'll be useful. The panacea is making sure there is no contractual entitlement. And we know from the pin dragon case that it is possible for an employer to say that 
A bonus or incentive arrangement has no contractual impact. It gives rise to no contractual rights. And that will be the case as long as you make the terms expressly clear. However, the courts um, have tried, or, 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 or various employees through the courts, have tried to attack that uh, using custom and practice, and I'll come on to that. And I think the one thing to say about all these types of a bonus arrangements is that they involve a punch-up between expressed terms and implied terms. And employees using implied terms to try and undermine uh, rights on the part of employer with a view to getting a payment. Um, and the interesting thing for me in terms of reading through these cases is some of the disdain that the judges have. They're looking at the employees as grubby money grubbers and they're looking at the employers as sort of tight-fisted uh, companies that are trying to get out of their obligations. And it's quite interesting to see how they reconcile this. And it often gives rise to quite a lot of contradiction uh, in the cases. Anyway, moving on to, so we've dealt with contractual, non-contractual arrangements. And then it's possible to have a contractual arrangement with discretion. And that could be absolute discretion involving all aspects of the arrangement, whether it's payment, how it's exercised, what sort of factors can be taken into account. But there is another form that you can have, which is contractual and partial discretion. And partial discretion will mean you have discretion only in relation to certain aspects, whether that's certain considerations that will be taken into account in terms of payment or certain overriding factors. So that's the basics. But it does lead to a key question. What is discretion and how far does it go? Um, again, this is a battleground with the implied term of trust and confidence. And where the courts have landed is that an employer must not treat employees arbitrarily, capriciously, or inequitably in matters of remuneration. It goes back to the FC uh, Gardner case in 1978. What does that mean? Well, to put it another way, an employer will be breach of the contractual arrangements if it exercises in a, a discretion in a way that no reasonable employer would have done. And, and that's what they, the, the, the Court of Appeal said in the Clark and Amura case. That was an interesting case. In, in that case, the individual um, made £6 million. In the previous years, he received a bonus for £1.4 million and £1.5 million. But the, court, uh, the, the company decided to pay him nothing because there were various issues with his employment. And the court said, actually, paying him nothing in those circumstances, that's irrational and perverse. And in those circumstances, that's a breach of the contractual <coughs> obligation, and that will give rise to a claim. And the interesting thing then is, when you have breached discretion, when you have breached the contract, what are the consequences? And we know from the Horkulak case that once you can show that there has been a capricious exercise of discretion, the remedy is what would have happened if there was a fair and rational exercise, which is a basically uh, a construct for the courts to determine the amounts payable. The key battlegrounds in relation to discretion apply in two areas. Firstly, where there's nil bonus, a bit like the Clark situation. Here in the context of Malone, that was actually a stock incentive arrangement where in accordance with the discretion under the stock incentive, the decision was pay, taken to pay something nothing, somebody nothing, because he was a poor performer. And the court said, well, he might be a poor performer, but reducing it to nothing was outside the bounds of what was acceptable. Another key battle area 
involves um, non-payment to a pool, where the, the, the employer goes so far to create a bonus pool, and then something happens in relation to the allocation of it, because the employer's taken the first step. Um, one of the key cases on this is a recent case of Ashfield and Dresner. Uh, you'll see Dresner are involved in uh, quite a few bonus cases. They obviously don't like paying incentives uh, to their staff. But in that case, quite interesting, um, the bank uh, was subject to rumours that it was going to be taken over. So the bank declared a guaranteed bonus pool of 400 million euros, which was in the days when uh, 400 million euros was quite a lot of money uh, for the Greek uh, tragedy. Um, so they had a guaranteed bonus pool of 400 million and then Lehman's happened. And the bank went, oh, crikey, what are we going to do now? Um, because the bank was worth less money. So they said to all the employees, we'll still honour it unless there are material adverse factors that arise in the last two months, November and December. And they sent letters to the employees setting out what they could expect to receive. And indeed, they had a town hall meeting. All the, all the employees came along and one of the big managers turned up and said, you know, the chances of us relying on the material adverse effect uh, rule, it, it, that's, that's, that's very low. And, and, and the problem for the employees is that immediately after the meeting, he was fired um, and they didn't pay the money. So the employees went to court and this was a case for summary judgment. And the test was whether there was a reasonable prospect of success. The employer was trying to knock the case out and the high court said, well, you know, there's quite a lot of discretion around these, these rules we will let the employer win. The Court of Appeal said, no, actually, um, you know, there is a bonus pool. There were letters allocating it. There is a question as to whether there was material adverse conditions. There was the town hall meeting, whatever that means in, in contractual terms. We are going to let that case proceed. And we haven't actually had a final determination on that, but we are waiting for it. So next thing is you've got discretion. We've talked about what discretion means. But how do you exercise it? And the first thing is that discretion can be fettered by the terms of the scheme. You can say, we'll get something, we'll take something into account, or a certain person will make the decision taking these factors into account, in which case it's important that that occurs. And the point to bear in mind is you can act capriciously, not just in relation to the outcome, but also in relation to the, the manner in which the discretion is exercised. Uh, an example here is the Ridgeway case. The individual was on sabbatical. Um, but notwithstanding that, he thought he was entitled to a large bonus payment. And the problem for the employer is that they didn't really put much thought into the decision not to reward him very much. They didn't follow the correct process. But the court said, well, although they didn't go through the normal, the normal um, uh, procedure that they do for everyone else, they probably did enough in the circumstances. So it's possible for an employer to take a proportional approach where that is appropriate. The one thing to bear in mind is that we now know from the Commerce Bank and Keen case that when you exercise discretion, and as part of the implied term of trust and confidence, which is the bugbear for this whole area for employers, there is an obligation, or probably an obligation, to give employees the reason for the outcome. So that's uh, something to bear in mind. And that's why it's important you go through the process and record the decisions, hopefully in a way that doesn't create too much risk. So let's break this down. We've talked about discretion. The schemes are made up of express terms, and as I mentioned, there's the battleground with the implied rights. So let's talk about the common express terms. Well, the first thing is, 
that any contractual arrangements or terms fettering the discretion or otherwise governing the arrangement need to be set out clearly so everyone understands what they mean. A useful example of this is the GX Networks case. Here the scheme said if there was overperformance, i.e. someone exceeded their commission entitlement, they would get an enhanced payment of X, Y, and Z. And the problem the employer had is that this individual was so good that she was selling so much stuff that she was really racking up a huge amount of entitlement to overperformance. And at the end of the year, the employer said, well, actually, uh, we haven't actually got a big enough pool to pay you all this money. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to rely on a term that says, in exceptional circumstances, we can change it. And off they went to court. And the court said, well, you didn't mention this to the employee during the course of the year because apparently you didn't want to demotivate her in the, in the performance of her role. You could have done that. <coughs> you left her to keep working extremely hard in the belief that these rules would apply. And then, as an employer, you're coming to the court and asking us to interpret exceptional as covering the situation where we wouldn't have to pay a bonus in this situation. And uh, it probably comes as no surprise that the employer failed in that and the enhanced bonus was payable. Another key battleground is the conditions. Conditions are really important in a scheme. When is it payable and when is the, the, when, when is the entitlement not payable? Generally speaking, most schemes say it's not payable if the employment is either terminated for any reason or certain specified reasons. For example, any reason other than gross misconduct or something along those lines. But again, this has become a key battleground with the implied duty of trust and confidence. And this comes from a line of authority starting with Aspen and Webb. And in that case, the employee was dismissed, the employee was sick, and they were dismissed because of their sickness in circumstances where the employer offered permanent health insurance arrangement. So the employee was deprived of the benefit of that scheme. And the court said the dismissal in those circumstances was a breach of the implied term of trust and confidence and consequently damages were payable and the damages were the amount that the, the employee should have received under the PHI scheme, i.e. 75% of the salary until the retirement date. Very expensive. So this sort of opened up all sorts of issues. It's followed by the, the sort of Gen, Gen V and uh, Australian Broadcasting case which applied the same principle in relation to redundancy payments. And then along came the Barclays Services case, TACAX, and they said, if you dismiss someone simply to stop them receiving a bonus payment, even if that's in accordance with the terms of the rules, that would be a breach of the implied term of trust and confidence. And that's quite worrying because most investment banks fire everyone the day before they're entitled to the bonus. And they've been relying on that for many years, so that becomes a bit of a problem. But the thing about that case, the TACAX case, was a summary judgment case. So it's a question of whether there was a reasonable prospect of success. It didn't actually determine. But the case said there was an arguable point and it should be tried before the High Court. And the problem we have, and quite a big problem, is the case was settled before it got to that stage. So we don't actually know what the outcome is. So it leaves us with a sense of uncertainty. However, there has been a case in 2002, which isn't uh, on the slide, which is a case of Riga. Um, and in that case, they poured scorn on the TACAX case. They said, well, if there are clear terms, the clear terms shouldn't be undermined by the implied terms. 
And if you are precise enough in your wording, so as to have a condition and prevent someone getting a bonus, and the employee signs up to them, then hard luck on the employee. I rather suggest that's going to be good law um, going forward. Um, the interesting case here, just because it was the Candy brothers who, again, didn't want to uh, pay any bonuses in the height of the recession. Um, in this case, the scheme says you aren't entitled to a bonus if you're not employed. And the Candy brothers went, oh, crikey, we need to fire this person before they get they get uh, to the, the, the payment date. So they terminated the employment. And the contract employment had a, a clause that said you could terminate immediately and make a payment in lieu of notice, quite a common term. But it didn't say how should the payment in lieu of notice be calculated. Should, for example, it take into account the amount they would have received on the bonus entitlement? So the case was about the construction of the pylon clause. And it was quite a close one thing, but the court took a holistic view, whatever that is. And they said, actually, if we look at the pylon provisions, um, we think, taking all the factors into account, that it, there is no obligation to include bonus in there. However, as I mentioned, very close one thing. And the key is, if you want a pylon provision in your contract, you should specify how the amount is calculated if you want to bring the employment to an end immediately. The final thing is something we've learned from the recession, is that if you have a bonus arrangement, have some sort of overriding condition that says, we'll only pay if we've got the money to do so. Um, think about all the holocaustic things that can happen to your organisation and make sure they're included so you've got flexibility if things start going wrong. Other points bear in mind, variation provisions. Um, you know, Again, a key battleground is an employer trying to change a scheme from one year to the next. The standard variation uh, rules apply. If you want to vary a scheme, make sure the variation provisions are set out clearly so both parties understand the extent of the variation and how it may be applied and what the context might be. <coughs> the final point on that slide is the impact of the unfair contract terms because perhaps unsurprisingly, some employees have said, well, you've got all these rules. They're a bit unfair, really. You know, I've worked really hard and I don't get any money and you just terminate me immediately and that's the end of it. I think that's a bit cruel. And one way they try to attack it is under the Unfair Contract Terms Act. And there was a case, Brigden case, which said that act applied to uh, employment agreements and consequently uh, they could be challenged in that manner. Um, that argument was poo-pooed in the case of Commerce Bank and Keene. In that case, the Court of Appeal uh, said actually those terms, uh, the, uh, the Unfair Contract Terms Act only applies when someone's dealing as a consumer. Uh, it doesn't apply to employment contracts uh, and basically uh, that's the end of the argument in relation to employment contracts but it, it may apply to collateral contracts such as health plans or things outside the standard employment agreement. So that's express terms um, and as I mentioned the express terms are undermined by lots of implied rights. It's possible, for example, for verbal representations to come into play and those to generate rights, although generally most schemes exclude those. It's good practice to do so. Secondly, custom and practice can undermine the rules of the scheme. If you have a scheme that is expressed to be discretionary but runs for five years, always applied in the same way, then it's possible, we know this from the Noble case, it's possible to, 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 to create a, a, a contractual arrangement, a contractual expectation that it will be uh, a, a applied in the future. And again, the way around that is to have a scheme saying customer practice makes no difference, anything in the past won't apply in the future. So it can be dealt with uh, to, to, to some degree or, or mostly by the terms of the scheme. 
have implied rights discrimination, which I'll come on to, the implied term of trust and confidence, which is something that's attacking every aspect and I'm dealing with in a piecemeal section, uh, piecemeal section uh, uh, what manner as I go through this talk. Next up, we've got fiduciary duties. Now, fiduciary duties um, are the duty of good faith that apply to people like directors or other people in a position of trust. And this is one of the, and as part of the duty of uh, good faith, you've got to act in the utmost best interests of the employer. And the question that arose in the Fisher case is whether in acting in the best interests of the employer, you should waive your rights to a bonus when, as a, as a member of the management team, you have contributed to a financial crisis. And the courts, perhaps unsurprisingly, said no. Um, that isn't going to work. But, um, and um, again, you'll see that it's, it's the favourite <coughs> bank uh, in, in terms of the, uh, the defendant in this action not wanting to pay any money. The final thing is um, implied terms uh, for, for um, business efficacy. And this came up in the Rutherford case, which I thought was a quite a surprising case because I think it was always bound to fail. In, in that case, um, they wanted to argue that it was an implied term of their bonus arrangement an implied term of the bonus arrangement that you had to be employed on the date when payment was made. That's an implied term. Um, and not surprisingly, the court said, actually, that's complete rubbish. If you want that term, it needs to be an express term. Otherwise, hard luck. The next battleground is repayment bonuses and clawbacks. And these have become much more fashionable um, following the recession, where you know people now commonly put in place terms, we're going to pay you this under the, the bonus, or pay you this. Uh, under the, um, the, the, the uh, incentive arrangement. But if something happens, we may have to ask you to repay the money. Perhaps there's some material business risk that was created or some other criteria. And there's a few ways of attacking these clauses, which I've set out the on the slide. Um, the first one is as a penalty, and this was dealt with in the Tullet Prebon case. Um, now, penalties render our clauses are void or can be void. But in the Tullet case, they said, look, you'll have to repay the bonus if you leave within a certain time frame. And the court said, well, that can't be a penalty because a penalty needs a breach of the contract and some consequence to arise before it, it can be rendered void. Here, there's no breach. Basically, if this happens, you have to do this. That's not a breach. There's no penalty. And consequently, the uh, payment provision uh, wasn't void on that basis. Quite interestingly, the, that case also dealt with restraint of trade. Whether the fact that you might, if you left, have to pay the, repay the money, whether that was a restraint of trade on the employer. And in the Tullet case, they said no. Because basically, the clause said, if you leave for any reason and do anything, you have to repay it. So it's not really stopping them going anywhere else and therefore restraining trade. It just applies if they leave. Um, that decision can be contrasted in the Sadler case where in the Sadler case it said, if you leave and go to a competitor, you will have to repay X. And the court said, well, in practice, that's a restraint of trade in the same way as a restrictive covenant. Um, and it's, an, in our view, an unfair restraint of trade. Uh, and, and consequently, uh, it's void. So that's a, a, a way of attacking that. Generally speaking, if you want to, to, to put something in that deals with that situation, then one way of dealing with it is to have some sort of pro rata or reduced amount that's payable over a period of time if, if they go, or hedging your bets uh, along those uh, lines. Um, next up, regulatory considerations. There are various 
things that people need to think about when they're putting bonus uh, and incentive arrangements in place. Um, I think the sort of hot topic at the moment is the remuneration code. It has been with us for a year, 18 months or so. Um, but it's quite interesting to see how parties are applying it. The remuneration code applies to investment banks and brokerages and other institutions uh, which can create risk which are regulated by the FSA and the FSA take a proportionate risk approach. If someone is in a risky position or a senior position then you need to take the rules more seriously. And the sort of things that the code wants is to pay people over a period of time and it wants to link incentives not just to profitability and risk but also compliance with um, compliance issues uh, and that sort of thing. So to take a balanced approach. The interesting thing for me is how some of the financial organisations have kind of used this to, to change the, the scope of the balancing power of their staff. For example, if you look at the contracts of employment that people have been offered in the city at the moment, a lot of the big financial institutions are kind of saying, well, you know, under the remuneration code, we can't commit to too much, so everything's going to be an agreement to agree, everything's going to be absolute discretion, everything might be, we might change the rules at any time because of the remuneration code and who knows what that means. So basically what they're doing is drafting contracts, which are meaningless. Now, in the depths of the recession, when people were desperate for jobs, they would sign up. But what the banks are starting to find now is that people won't move unless they understand where they stand. They understand that an employer has to comply with the remuneration code, but that doesn't mean they can't have some contractual rights. And it's becoming a bit of a battleground uh, in, in, in that field. So next up, discrimination, pregnancy, maternity issues. Um, as you all know, uh, um, the various um, different strands of um, discrimination have now been embodied in the Equalities Act. I think there's now nine. Also, that had powers. Um, so if, if there's a discrimination case and the employee is successful, the tribunal can make uh, uh, recommendations that, that, that may affect other people within an organisation. There was also some rules dealing with tagging clauses, confidentiality provisions that <coughs> employers might want to put in, saying you won't tell anyone else what your remuneration is. And this provision has slightly undermined that in that they can't apply when someone's asking for that information for the purpose of trying to pursue some sort of discrimination complaint. And of course that can be used in a, a slightly mischievous way to try and find out what everyone else is paid by kind of making up some spurious complaint and then getting that information. The Act also contained quite controversial uh, obligations for em uh, employers with more than 250 employees to provide uh, gender pay gap information, i.e. to publish the, the pay gaps between uh, the, that arise at different levels uh, within their organisations, which is obviously quite controversial. And the, the government's come in and said, well, actually, you know, that's, we think that's too controversial. We're going to delay that until at least... Uh, 2013. And in fact, the coalition have said, actually, we, we we're not going to apply it. We think it's, it's, it's a bit too dangerous. It's going to um, just inflame the situation. But what they're looking at is um, putting in place a scheme where there is compulsory equal pay audits on employers who have more uh, than 100 employees. So we're still waiting for the detail of that, but that's the expectation. Um, next up, we've got a bit of a battleground going on in pregnancy, also maternity. Uh, the Evershed's case um, was an interesting example of this. In that case, someone was on maternity leave. They had a selection criteria, which was lockup, which is how long uh, the clients take to pay uh, their bills. And in that case, the Evershed's decided, well, you know, this, this lady's on maternity leave. We're going to give her 100% on that. Um, whereas the chap 
who she was compared with um, was assessed by, by virtue of what was actually happening. So say it was 70% and consequently he was made redundant. So he brought a claim on the basis that the female member of staff on maternity leave had been treated more favourably. Anyone? And the court said, look, yeah, it's fine when people are pregnant to make allowances or maternity leave to make allowances. But if you're going to make allowances, make allowances that are proportionate. So here, for example, they should have looked back at the individual's career history and perhaps looked and saw, seen what their, the, you know, their lockup was. And perhaps if there were some external factors, that could have been uplifted or, or, or reduced. But put some proportionate thought into it, and that would have helped resolve the situation. The other thing to bear in mind is just because someone's on maternity leave doesn't mean that you can get out of paying their bonus entitlement. And the rules in relation to this depend on whether the bonus is related to group performance or individual performance. If there is an element of individual performance, then the bonus entitlement needs to be prorated up to the date they go on maternity leave, taking into account the first two weeks of the maternity leave, which are uh, regarded as the compulsory maternity leave period. If bonus arrangement is group-wise, so personal performance doesn't make any difference, then the individual still has the same entitlement throughout the maternity leave period. Um, just touching very briefly on remedies. Most bonus cases are brought as wrongful dismissal claims in the county court or high court. Um, what we are seeing is a lot of people trying to pursue the claims as uh, unfair deduction of wages claims um, uh, before a tribunal with the, the, the limit of um, 25,000. Um, an interesting case here is the Coors Brewer and Adcock case said, look, you can only bring an unfair deduction of wages claim if you can point to a specific amount that you are owed. If that is variable, which is likely to be the case in, in terms of discretionary arrangements, then you have to bring a, a, a standard uh, wrongful dismissal claim. And as I mentioned on previous slides, there may also be rights that arise for unfair dismissal claims and discrimination uh, uh, liabilities. So finally for me, um, a few drafting tips. And it goes without saying that the key here is making sure that your terms um, make sure that um, to the extent you want something to be contractual, that's absolutely clear. And to the extent you want it to be discretionary, that's clear. And to the extent that you want to limit implied rights, you do so. So customer practice is excluded um, and any other aspects. So basically you want to exclude non-written representations, exclude rights from previous customer practice, clarify whether the scheme is contractual. If it's not and it's discretionary, make it clear what sort of aspects are covered by the discretionary arrangement and make sure that the extent of the discretion is made absolutely clear. If there are any conditions, for example, when it can be paid and in what circumstances it can be paid, set those out, make them absolutely clear. Next up, clarify your pylon provisions. Normally in the contract of employment as opposed to perhaps a separate bonus document, but look at those provisions. Normally you should say a pylon is based on basic salary only. That will get you there. Um, but if it, if it just says we'll make a payment in lieu of notice, that's going to be problematic. And finally, if you want to change it, and it's really important that you do preserve the right to change the arrangements in the future, set out how it can be uh, changed so there is a clear expectation uh, going forward. In terms of other tips, it really comes down to how you apply these rules and how you assess people. And the key is here is making sure you apply a consistent approach to the assessment. 
um, ensure that decisions are double-checked and verified to make sure that they, that they are compliant and fair. Record key decisions after careful review. Make sure you record them, you know, make sure that in recording them you don't create a headache uh, for yourself. And above all, avoid making uh, verbal promises. Yeah. Okay, so you make start on the uh, second, second half of the speech, second half of the presentation today. Uh, my name is Mike Cashman. I'm the tax partner here at Kemp Little. And I'm talking about the, the second piece of incentivization, which is the share-based incentive piece. Um, I started off sitting there today listening to David's presentation and watching it. And I was a little bit disturbed to see that David referred to, I think on my count, around about 40 cases in his presentation. I'd like to assure you that mine contains only 40 fewer than that. <laughs> and I'm not sure what that means, whether that means that David's presentation is a lot more highbrow than mine, or whether there's some other reason. I don't know. Anyway, um, any package that you're looking at putting together for your employees will generally uh, include a number of components. And what you would tend to find is that people will look at combining a cash-based incentive program with some form of share-based incentive program. And the trick really is to find out what's the best mix and the best combination for your business. So looking at share-based incentives, there are various types of in, uh, share-based incentives you can, you can take. You can issue fully paid or nil paid shares. You can grant some form of share options, uh, ideally some sort of tax-favoured share options. You can issue what are called growth shares, which I'll talk about later, which are uh, increasing in popularity. You can have phantom share option plans. You can have co-ownership plans. You can have a long-term incentive plan. There's a vast number of different forms of share incentives. So what I'm proposing to do is have a have a look at the various alternatives and then maybe look at what might be the right choice for your particular business. And I think it's important to note that there might not be one single right choice. It may well be that there's a combination. So I'd like to start just briefly on the commercial questions, commercial objectives again with establishing a share plan. Why would you establish a share scheme? Again, it's to motivate your employees to become a little bit more productive. It's to align your employees' interests with those of the shareholders. And what's good about share plans is that it focuses everyone on working towards increasing the value of the company, which is a benefit for the employees who benefit in the increase in the value through the share scheme, and it benefits the current shareholders who see an increase in their asset. You can use share schemes to remunerate uh, recruit, retain key employees. Generally, if you're looking at a management employee or somebody with technical expertise, they'll be looking for a package these days that includes some form of share-based incentives. You can remunerate employees in a tax-efficient way, always important. And importantly for developing companies is that you can use share schemes to compensate for lower salaries and to relieve pressure on your cash flow. Now, a company which in, is in the development phase will have a limited pot of cash. And you have choices. You can spend your pot of cash on paying employees, or you can spend your pot of cash on developing your business, developing a product to sell. 
Using share-based incentives allows you to divert more of your cash into developing your business and to developing your products and growing your business into a success. Now, of course, share schemes do have, do have some disadvantages and it would be remiss of me not to mention a few of these. And these are really things to think about. Share schemes work wonderfully well if the share price goes up and up and up indefinitely into the future. You have to think what will happen if the share price falls. And I'm sure you've all seen the small print on the advert that says the price of shares can go up as go down as well as up. The effect on morale, the effect on employee retention if the share price does fall. Uh, a classic example of this was one of my former partners uh, left left law for two reasons. One was he couldn't stand one of his other partners, which I don't think comes into your thinking. But the other one was he went to join a, a well-known online company based in Seattle. And one of the reasons he went was that they offered him a pile of share, share options. And he said he could participate in the capital growth of that company, which is something he couldn't do in a law firm. And that was one of the main reasons for him making the jump. Unfortunately for him, the share price, as soon as he moved, started on a downward plunge. And it kept going for some time. <coughs> He had his options reissued on about half a dozen occasions, uh, repriced each time. And the problem for the, with that was that he spent a lot of his time, rather than working out how he could grow the business, how he could make the business more tax efficient, how he could save tax, was trying to work out how he could get new options, how he could get his options reissued, how he could get his options repriced. And the company itself spent a vast amount of management time and a vast amount of money on professional fees, continually reissuing options. Now that is an example of a company where the share options just didn't work terribly well, simply because the share price just tanked, for want of a better word. Uh, there's a few administration costs for setting up a share options scheme. They're not, not unduly onerous, but they are there. Uh, you will dilute share ownership, so the current shareholders will have to realise that they'll end up with a smaller stake in the company. Uh, you may arouse unrealistic expectations amongst your employees. I'm sure everyone, when they set up a share option scheme, likes to talk it up and tell the, share, tell the employees how wonderfully well they're going to do. And the other thing you need is you may need to create a market for the shares. It's all well and good having shares in a company, but if you can't sell them to anyone, they're not worth a great deal to an employee. Now, you can deal with that possibly, as we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, by only letting them get their their shares just before an exit event, for example a sale or an IPO. Another way of dealing with it is for a bigger company you could set up an employee benefit trust which can create a market in the shares. I think one other point just to note is that uh, if employees do receive shares in the company they do become shareholders. So you have to think then about what will happen if an employee wants to transfer his shares. You don't want to end up with somebody you don't know potentially ending up as your shareholder, fellow shareholder. So you'll need to think about transfer restrictions, buyback rights in the articles. If you want to sell the company, you'll need some drag-along rights in the articles so that you can force your share, the employees to sell with you. Now looking at, looking at the various types of incentives, the simplest incentive is simply to issue new shares. It's very straightforward and you can do this in various different ways. You can simply have your employee pay the full market price on issue. You can issue them shares at a discount. You can issue them shares and let them pay nothing until some predetermined event in the future. 
such as an exit. You could have the employees partly pay for the shares on issue, with the remaining balance to be paid at some future date. Or even you could just give your, give your employees shares for free. Just issue them shares. Now, partly how you would drive this is driven by commercial reasons, but partly is also the tax consequences of doing it for your employees. Because if you issue shares to your employees and they pay less than the full unrestricted market value, they'll incur an income tax charge. Where that may prove problematic for your employees is they may not have the cash to pay this income tax charge if they can't sell the shares. So that's, that's an important consideration. Alternatively, you could ask them to pay the unrestricted market value but just defer the payment. That defers the tax charge until a future date, perhaps when the shares are sold. That, however, will be treated as a notional loan for tax purposes and your employees, if they don't pay interest, will be treated as receiving a benefit in kind equal to the notional interest on the loan. So they, they have a little bit of tax to pay on an annual basis. The employees also <coughs> have a risk if the shares fall in value or the company becomes insolvent. Now, this partly gets down to if you are issuing shares to your employees, however it's being structured, explaining to them the consequences and the implications of them receiving shares on this basis. Uh, I did a job for, uh, for a company once that wanted to let their employees, or wanted to encourage their employees to invest in the shares of the company, which is great. And they initially thought about paying them a bonus. Pay them a £100 bonus, uh, tax of 40% at the time, you've got £60, you invested in the company, you get shares. All well and good. But the company thought, well, we could do a little bit more for our employees. So what they said was, we'd like them to benefit from the growth in value of the whole £100, rather than just the 60 so what they decided to do was to loan the employees £100 and then encourage the employees to invest £100 in the shares of the company. Employees had their annual uh, notional interest uh, benefiting kind, paid a little bit of tax on that. The idea being that at some point in the future when uh, the company had done well, employees would sell their shares, they'd sell them for something in excess of £100, pay off the £100 loan and have a nice tidy sum in their hands uh, as a benefit. Now this all sounds really great so far and this is the way they sold it to their employees. However, they did this right at the end of 2007. Now from a timing perspective, that sucked because in 2008 the value of the shares just fell dramatically. and what they then found was that they had employees with a loan of £100 and shares worth about £50 to back it. Uh, employees started leaving and saying, well, I'd, I'd like my money. And at this point it was, well, actually, there is no money and actually you owe us £50. The employee said, you didn't tell us this. You, you never explained this could possibly happen. I'd have rather have just had a cash bonus and, you know, paid my tax invested the, uh, the smaller amount. So that was an example of bad communication between the employer and the employees and what turned out to be what was intended to be an incentive and a big encouragement for their employees turned into a massive disincentive and the company solved the problem in the end uh, simply by throwing money at it. They ended up just paying paying off the people. They they waived, the, uh, they waived the amount of the loan that was outstanding, they paid the tax for the employees.
it ended up as very expensive and very demotivating uh, plan for the employees. <coughs> now they could have they could have done it in a different way that wouldn't have been so bad, but you know that was how that was the way they chose. But they didn't communicate properly with their employees, and that was one of their main issues. Now one benefit of issuing shares is that the employees may be able to benefit from entrepreneur's relief when they sell their shares. Entrepreneur's relief enables an employee to sell shares in a business providing he's held 5% of the shares for 12 months before the date of sale and benefit from a 10% rate of tax on the first 10 million of gains. That's quite a big incentive for an employee but to do that he needs to hold shares. So issuing him shares up front does give him, if he holds 5%, the possibility of entrepreneur's relief, which may be quite important for your senior management. And it could be quite a big, a big incentive for your senior management, quite a good selling point as well. Now, if you don't want to issue them shares up front, you could think about establishing a share option plan. Um, share option plans let employees again share in the growth that they've created. It doesn't have any financial risk for employees. They're not investing money up front. They're not entering into obligations whereby they're required to pay money in the future, in my example. Uh, they're not paying money into a company that goes bust. They're not paying, they're not acquiring shares where if the company does go bust, they've got a liquidator coming along and asking for the unpaid amount on the shares. So it's, it's pretty risk-free for an employee. You can get good tax benefits for the employee, you can get good tax benefits for the company. And a share option plan is, is, quite, is really quite simple to operate. Uh, you don't need a separate class of shares for your employees. You don't need complicated lever provisions. The options lapse if they leave. You don't need drag-along rights. And it's particularly important to note that share option plans can be incredibly flexible. You get, you get a lot of flexibility in how you want to structure your plans to meet your particular needs, the particular requirements of your business. And the commercial objectives in whatever plan you want to set up for your employees is critical because you know you shouldn't be letting the tax tail wag the dog. I never get the right way around but I did. So the commercial objectives you must think very strongly about those. Now for share options you can make the options dependent upon the employees reaching certain milestones or the company reaching milestones such as sales target. You can structure your share option scheme so that the employees only become entitled to the shares if there's a sale of the company or an IPO. So until there's an exit event, they have no entitlement, which again means that one, it's less risky for them, but two, it means that you, the shareholders, can run your company how you like. You can limit the scheme. Certain, certain schemes, most schemes, you can limit to certain employees. You don't have to reward everyone equally, subject to discrimination. Uh, etc. But you can you can give people different different share awards, share option awards. You can you can look after your senior management. You can look after your key technical people a little bit better if you need to. That's quite acceptable. You can require a certain number of years of service before you give people options. But again, ensure there is no discrimination. The options can lapse if the employee leaves the company. That way, only people who continue to contribute to your business can benefit from the growth in the in the shares. And you can establish a combination of schemes. Uh, we're going to talk in a minute about EMI schemes, which are very popular. You could establish an EMI scheme, 
for the bulk of your option issues, issues of options. You could establish an unapproved share scheme for top-up options for people you want to reward above the EMI limits. You can have a separate US subplan if you've got a US subsidiary with US employees, so you can properly incentivize them. You, can, you have flexibility. You can structure your share option plan to achieve what you want to achieve for your employees and to achieve what you want to achieve to make sure you're getting the best from your employees wherever they may be and whatever position they occupy in the company. Now, most share option plans are revenue approved plans. And what this means is that you have certain requirements that must be satisfied when you establish the plan, when you operate the plan, when you issue options under the plans. And the quid pro quo for that is you get tax benefits. Your employees get tax benefits when they receive and exercise their options. And the company gets tax benefits in the way of a corporation tax deduction for issuing shares to satisfy the options. Uh, you get various types of revenue approved plans, uh, enterprise management incentives, EMI plans, probably the most common these days. You get company share option plans, CSOPs, share incentive plans, SIPs, and save as you earn plans, which are SAYE. Each one has its own requirements, each one has its own tax benefits. And as you see, each one has <coughs> its own nifty use of initials, which is a, fur a further benefit. So let's start with EMI plans. EMI plans these days are probably the most common form of revenue approved plan that you see. And what they're designed for is they're designed for small growing companies. Now for a company to issue EMI options, it's got a number of requirements it has to satisfy. It must have fewer than 250 full-time employees. It must be an independent trading company or a member of a trading group. And by this, I mean that the company can't be a subsidiary or controlled by another company. So that if you are going to issue EMI options, you must use the top company in the group to issue the options. And if your company is sold and comes under the control of another option, that another company, that will be a disqualifying event. So you'll either need to exercise your options at that point, or you, there are provisions that let you roll them up into a new holding company. The company has to have less than £30 million pounds worth of gross assets. Uh, there's certain types of business that don't qualify for EMI options. And partly this is because of the general tenor of EMI options is to encourage risk-taking entrepreneurial business. Now, some of the excluded business sector, sec sectors, you can see uh, sectors which might not encourage risk-taking and entrepreneurship. These include things like land dealing, farmers. Again, I apologize to any land dealers or farmers in the audience for describing it as not risk-taking. But interestingly, it also includes banking. And I'm at a bit of a loss as to why banking is determined to be a non-risk-taking and entrepreneurial business. But I'm sure more important people than me have thought about this. Uh, and you also need to carry on with UK business. The UK, the trading company can carry on a UK business itself, or a foreign company can carry on business through a permanent establishment in the UK. Now, providing your company satisfies those requirements, you're capable of setting up an EMI plan. Under an EMI plan, you can grant options over shares worth up to £120,000 to a single employee, a total of £3 million worth of options, and the eligible employees have to be full-time employees, so they have to work at least 25 hours a week 
or be employed for at least 75% of their full working time if it's less than 25 hours. Again, a full-time employee working at least 25 hours a week doesn't seem that onerous to me, but being a lawyer, probably unsurprising. So why are EMI plans so popular? The main reason they're popular is that they provide a number of very favourable tax benefits. Now generally, an employee can receive an EMI option and he'll pay no income tax or national insurance when the option's granted or when the option's exercised. Uh, you'll only end up paying tax if the option's granted at a discount and then you'll pay tax on the discount at the exercise price. So effectively, an employee receives his EMI option tax-free. He pays, he pays his strike price and then any gain is capital gain when he sells the shares. The company gets corporation tax deduction equal to the gain on the exercise of the option. So the market value on the date of exercise less the exercise price. So from a tax perspective, looking at the various alternatives, this is probably close to the best you can do because the employee gets shares, he pays no income tax on them, he gets capital gains tax on the growth, the company gets tax deduction for the shares it issues, it's good all round. And another useful point is that you can structure your EMI plan so that the options only are only exercisable just before a sale. And what that will mean is that the company will receive its tax deduction for the issue of the shares just before the sale. So if you're involved in selling your business, this can be quite a useful bargaining chip with your purchaser because the purchaser will get the benefit of that tax deduction going forward. And as a seller, you can either use that as a bargaining chip to get a little bit more cash out of your purchaser or to strike a more favorable deal in some other respect. So that, that's a useful, a very useful side effect of uh, EMI plans. And I think that if a company does qualify and can issue EMI options, it's unless you want to give your employees shares up front for commercial reasons, the EMI plan is probably the best way to go because it's simple to establish, it's, it's a well-trodden path now, the tax breaks are great, you get a lot of flexibility with what you do with it. So there's a lot of plus, plus, plus with an EMI plan. Um, I'll just touch briefly now on the other, the other approved, uh, revenue approved plans. Uh, the CSOP was the favourable uh, tax favoured share option plan of choice before the EMI plan came into, came into being. Uh, it, tax breaks are similar to EMI plans. You no income tax when the options are granted or exercised, capital gains tax when you sell the shares. But the limit on CSOPs is fairly, is fairly small. You can only issue £30,000 worth of options over £30,000 worth of shares. And you do need to have approval from the revenue for your scheme before you start issuing options. Uh, these schemes are very popular before EMI came into existence. Uh, now they're mainly used, I think, realistically by companies that don't, don't qualify to issue EMI options. A uh, couple of other revenue approved plans. These are the SIP and the SAYE. These are all employee plans and they do have fairly, fairly small limits. Uh, they tend to be used by larger companies that want to provide some firm-wide benefit to a large number of employees. 
So a SIP, for example, must be open to all employees. Uh, you can give staff £3,000 worth of free shares each year. They can spend the further 1500 buying more shares. They buy more shares, you can give them a further two shares for each share they buy. But the, downfall, the, down, um, the less favourable aspect here is that the shares have to be held in a trust. And there's no income tax or national insurance payable by the employee, provided the shares stay in the trust for five years. Now, five years is a long time. And given the small numbers, the, the costs of a SIP can be quite, quite steep over a five-year period. Uh, once you get the, the, the shares out, it's capital gains tax going forward if they're in for five years. If we draw the shares in less than five years, uh, you pay income tax as an employee. Uh, the market value of the free and matching shares is tax deductible uh, when the shares are awarded. Uh, SAYE, these are mainly used, as I said, by larger companies. ICI has one. Tesco's, I think, has one. Uh, and then what's known as a cloth cap scheme. Uh, enables employees to save small amounts each month for a number of years. At the end, they get their money back. They can use it to buy shares or they can just take the money and spend it tax-free. Other share plans, the unapproved share option. Uh, unapproved share options aren't revenue approved, hence the clue in the name. Um, they're very flexible. You can pretty much do what you like with an unapproved share option scheme. No limit on the number of options that you can issue. The downside is that when you issue the exercise the option, the employee gets hit with income tax at that point. And it's equal he's taxed on the difference between the market value of the shares he gets and the exercise price. So it's not as favourable as the other plans, but you might want to use an unapproved scheme in conjunction with an approved plan. So use the approved plan to the extent you can. If you want to top up people, then issue them some unapproved options. And finally, LTIPs. Uh, these are becoming a lot more popular, usually established by listed companies. Shares go into a trust and they get the employees get the shares based on long-term targets, such as the sales target or something like that. Now, I've talked about the issuing, issue of shares. I've talked about share options. I'd like to finish, I'm, I'm running out of time, just talking briefly about growth shares. And growth shares are becoming more, more and more popular, uh, partly because they can help the employee benefit from entrepreneur's relief if he satisfies the, the requirements. And growth shares are essentially shares of a special class that allow the holder to benefit from the growth in the company from the time he acquires the shares. So they do this by putting a, a hurdle amount into the article. So if the company is worth, say, 10 million when you get issued your shares, the gross shares, the, the initial sh the, original, the ordinary shares will benefit from the first 10 million. Then to the extent the company is worth more than 10 million on a sale or, or some other exit event, the growth shares benefit in anything above 10 million. So they really do benefit from the growth generated by the employees. The employees are subject to income tax when the growth shares are issued, but the shares are structured to have very low market value because you're not entitled to the first 10 million of uh, gains in my example. Uh, there's performance restrictions that are built into the articles. So the employees may pay a little bit of tax when they get the shares, but the shares are structured to have a low value, so any tax will be fairly minor. As I said, employees might, can benefit from entrepreneur's relief. Quite useful for companies that can't benefit from uh, 
from EMI schemes because you can achieve a fairly similar result. Potential downside is that you might have to spend a little bit on lawyers fees, not a bad thing per se, to set up your, um, to redraft your articles for growth shares. It's not, it's not substantially more than an EMI plan. Uh, it is a little bit more complicated to establish, it's a little bit more complicated to explain to your employees. And in interest of fairness, I should note that HMRC are reviewing the taxation of growth shares. Uh, they proposed a consultation uh, about a year ago, but frankly nothing much has happened. And I think really they've moved on to some other topics. So I'd like to conclude just by noting that you know, what, we've had, what we've had is very much a, a canter through the share incentives world. As you can see, there are a number of different ways you can, you can structure share incentives, uh, ranging from issuing shares, ordinary shares, uh, partly paid, fully paid, notional loans. You can have share options, half a dozen different types. You can structure share options flexibly. You can issue growth shares. And what's important, really, is that you have to determine and look at what works best for your company, what works best for your employees, for the way you want to incentivize your employees. And it's really looking at that and thinking about that that's important and looking at how you combine share incentives with cash incentives. I'm almost done. <laughs> uh, thankfully, the first person to walk out. Um, and it's looking at combining cash incentives with share incentives and coming up with an overall package that suits your business needs. And I think that's me, me done, hopefully on time. I'd like to ask whether there are any questions, and you can ask questions of me or David. If there are any, any of them are case-related, please direct them to David. <laughs> yep. Okay, uh, first question, the £30,000 limit, I think, has been in place since the early 90s, and I don't think it's changed since then. Uh, you might recall that initially CSOPs had no limit on them, and what happened was they found that a number of uh, businesses, especially formerly, former government businesses that were privatised, were employees, executives were making vast sums of money and there was a massive public backlash against that and that was why they brought in the £30,000 limit. To be honest, I think the government have lost interest a little bit in CSOPs because the, the EMI scheme is now the one they're focusing their, their attention and love on and that's the one that they're aiming because they think it helps in growing companies which will help the economy and they have changed the EMI limits. The EMI limit, when it was established, was 100,000. They popped it up to 120. So unapproved schemes, I can't think they'll do anything with. EMI limits, I think, might go up a little bit in the future. Um, will the government attack share option schemes generally, approved schemes? I don't think so. I think that the government is working quite hard to use EMI plans as an incentive for growth. 
and that's something I think they'll support. What I think they will attack are the bigger excesses that they perceive occurring. For example, employee benefit trusts. You know, people, they've, they've had a number of pops at employee benefit trusts and Dextra cases, um, Dextra case, sorry, there you go, one case. Um, and they introduced the disguised remuneration rules partly aimed at employee benefit trusts. So I, I suspect what they'll do is they'll try and tighten up the, the fringe areas, for want of a better word, uh, surrounding share options. Is there any um, scope to convert, for example, an unapproved plan or part converted into EMI if, for example, you know, the issuer became eligible or would it be easier to start afresh? It would be easier to start afresh. You can, you can change a plan, but it would be easier simply just to start with a new plan, to be honest, because otherwise you're just disapplying pieces and adding pieces in and an unapproved plan, you know, as I said, you can pretty much do what you want. An EMI plan, you've got a whole series of restrictions and requirements that you need to satisfy, which get tend to be put into the plan itself. So you then have to be trying to insert bits here and just apply bits, as opposed to just saying here, new EMI plan, bang, in. Excellent. I think I think we're done, David. Right.